Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about a really interesting case of a patient who was found unresponsive and how the medical team worked to diagnose and treat his condition. I'm excited to unpack all the educational nuggets from this case, but I'm even more excited about my guest who's joining me for the episode. Today, I have with me Alice Benjamin, also known as Nurse Alice, and affectionately referred to as America's favorite nurse. She's a cardiac clinical nurse specialist, a family nurse practitioner with 23 years of healthcare experience. When she's not busy saving lives, Alice also works as a TV and media health expert. I am sure you have seen her at some point answering the public's questions about whatever on national news platforms. Alice is also the chief nursing officer of nurse.org and the host of the Ask Nurse Alice podcast. Y'all, I don't know when this woman sleeps, but I am stoked to have her with me today. So Alice, welcome to the Rapid Response RN podcast. Thank you so much. And you know what, nurse, I think we're accustomed to like not sleeping, not eating, not drinking. <laughs> Although that's not always the healthiest, but sometimes like, you know, when you're passionate about something, like we get stuff done. That's what nurses do. We yes, get stuff done. that's right. Well, you have definitely gotten some stuff done in your career. I want to say too, I saw you maybe like two years ago on some sort of news. I don't remember the details. You were asking something about COVID. And I was like, oh my gosh, that nurse is making us all look good. <laughs> I love <Yeah>. her <laughs> because we've seen so many like bad stories in media, nurses that are like killing people or doing things that are unethical or just there's so many like negative images of nursing in media. But I saw you, I was like, yes, speak for the profession. Yes, Nurse Alice, tell them what it's like. <laughs> so yes, I'm so, so honored to have you on my podcast today. Thank you. So before we dive into the case, can you just briefly summarize like your nursing career and how you ended up being a media health expert? Okay, so honest moment, I didn't necessarily have my eyes set out on being a nurse. You know, like in my late high school years, I'm like, I'm going to be an accountant. I'm going to count the money. I'm going to be in finance. And that's what (laughs) I thought. But my dad, who was a retired service member, Navy, he had picked up the habit of smoking because back then, Folks in the military would say, smoke them if you got them. That's how you got a break. So we picked up this habit of smoking. And we all know years of smoking can do to the heart and to the lungs and all those other things. So he developed high blood pressure. Then he had had a heart attack. He had had strokes. So many things had happened to him. And then so as the eldest, I kind of fell into this role of helping to take care of my dad. And he always said, you know, you're going to be a great nurse one day. I'm like, no, I'm going to be an accountant. And lo and behold, I kind of naturally fell into this role, not realizing that this was going to be my life's work. And my dad ultimately uh, and unfortunately died of a massive heart attack in an emergency room with some unattentive healthcare providers, I'm going to say the least, mm. right? Mm. And so that planted a seed in me. And I'm like, I'm going to be the best cardiac nurse in the world. I'm not going to let this happen to anyone else. 
So I'm going to do community education so people can take steps to better take care of their health and better understand what's going on between themselves and their healthcare providers. Like patients deserve providers who are going to explain stuff and really help them through their journey. And so I didn't, my dad didn't really have that. Um, and we didn't have the community outreach then. And now, you know, I started working with the American Heart Association and all these other community organizations with community outreach and health fairs and stuff like that. And it kind of spiraled into the media part of it, which, by the way, on my journey, I went from just, by the way, right out of high school, CNA, then the LVN, RN with Associates, then RN went, did my bachelor's all the time I'm working. And then I went to school for my first master's is in nursing education and clinical nurse specialist. Right. I know. I love <laughs> teaching. And so worked as a clinical nurse specialist for several years, got frustrated that I didn't have prescriptive authority, went back and got my postmasters as a family nurse practitioner. I know the feeling. I'm thinking about going back myself. Yes. And so I did, you know, as I was working, I was always doing community education, whether at a church, my kids' school, American Heart Association. And they asked me, American Heart, said, hey, Alice, can you come on the radio and talk about how to be heart healthy during the holidays? You seem to be a real hit at the health fairs. And so that started. And then I came back for another topic. And then as I was representing the American Heart Association, these producers, it's a small world, and they would communicate with each other. Then they would move from one company to another, and then they would bring me along with them. And so I found myself in a very unique space because I didn't see other nurses doing this. I always thought physicians. And early on, I got trumped by physicians a lot, like an OBGYN doctor talking about heart attacks when, hey, I'm a cardiac clinical nurse specialist. Hello. But I stuck with it. I stayed consistent. And fast forward, long story short, I, you know, I put, made a website. I did some blogs and people started searching on the internet when they're looking for health experts. And then once you start doing something, you people find that, that out, then they call on you because they're like, oh, she knows what she's doing. You know, I would have never known or thought that I would end up in this media role that I'm in, which I'm very thankful for. I love the fact that I get to represent nurses in a positive light, yes. being leaders in healthcare conversations and discussions and not just being like a victim of something or, you know, going on strike or mm-hmm. committing a crime, like you said, or causing harm. It really feels really good to represent the profession in the role as a health expert and helping to empower people to take control of their health. Yes. Yes. Well, we are all glad that you're the face of nursing. We appreciate it. Thank you. So you went to school, you did all the degrees, LVN, ASN, like all all the way up. Okay. And then what roles have you had in healthcare as far as, um, like you said, ER, a little ICU? What what have you done? So I started in like the telemetry step down area at the top now, what we know now is progressive care it didn't have that name okay. when i started i was actually one of the first nurses to take the pccn fyi oh, cool. but i started in that kind of that telly step down area mm-hmm. and that's i'm so glad i did because it was an area which the patients have higher acuity than med surge but to get a little taste of icu a little more frequently and i'm like okay mm-hmm. i like this little dance and so i started there but then quickly realized icu was my jam especially everything and anything cardiac. I found my niche in cardiac ICU. As I was growing in the media, at the time, nurses were not doing this. And unfortunately, I had a chief nursing officer tell me, nurses don't belong on television. Doctors or more senior nurses should be doing this, What? I was devastated. I was like, you should be happy for me. But I was really devastated. But that was kind of like the nurses eat their young type of thing because like there's this thing with the longer you've been somewhere like the seniority. 
It's like, oh, you should mm-hmm. be doing this. I should be doing this. Well, you should be doing it. You should be doing this. Well, do it. <laughs> do it. Like, I didn't know what you want me to tell you. But mm-hmm. so I found myself at a crossroads that if I wanted to continue my media journey, I wasn't going to be able to do it at this particular hospital unless I was representing the hospital. And I said to the PR person, I said, you know, I would love to, but I don't know that I want to brand myself as a nurse that works at said hospital. Right. They looked at me, they're like, brand. Mm-hmm. So like early on, like, you know, now we're entrepreneurs, we got brands. But back then, that wasn't the discussion. They're like, a nurse, the brand, you're just a nurse. You're just a nurse. That's kind of the mentality. But I use that energy to kind of propel me. So what I did is I went to a smaller hospital. I've done education roles. I've been adjunct faculty at nursing schools. I did some traveling, but all in the kind of the ICU area. But then I eventually found myself in ER. And I'll be honest, it wasn't the area I necessarily wanted to work in because my dad died in the ER. So there was like this part of me that was scared and didn't want to be reminded of what happened. But fast forward in this latter part of my journey, I become a nurse practitioner I'm working more in the ER and I find myself now in the position to help be the provider that is more attentive. So things that happen to my dad don't happen to other people. So it's like full circle. It's like all meant to be. Yeah. And honestly, I bet that conversation with your CNO about uh-huh. nurses not having a place in media, that probably fueled your fire even more. Like you're like, oh no, this is going to happen. I'm going to achieve this. I just know, just for knowing you a little bit, you're right. like, okay, no, we're going to find a way to pull this off. I'll get the letters behind my name to prove that I know what I'm talking about and I will show up. <laughs> well, I love and, it, Alice. I love it. And I think that's the thing. I think nurses haven't always been great at embracing early innovation. We're always late to the table. So we find ourselves, something's happened, someone's made a decision and we're complaining about it. Sometimes we didn't get an invite, but sometimes we need to like have better foresight and invite ourselves to other tables. But to get to meet the media part, nurses weren't doing it. And I was doing stuff for like ANA, like promoting professional things. I was talking about heart disease, prevention, diabetes. Like this is the stuff we teach our patients. So I don't understand what the problem was for me doing it on my off day on television or radio. Like wasn't that what we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to educate the community? Right. So, you know, go figure. But yeah, I was a little bit, I was way disappointed, but now it's the hot thing. Now it's the trend. Yeah, I love it. I love that you just, it's almost like you were meant to do it and you just, you ran with it. I love that so much. So let's talk about this patient because it's such an interesting case that you share with mm-hmm. me. So you're working in the ER for this case? Are you an yes. ER nurse practitioner at the time? So at this time, I had just completed an NP assignment. So I was looking for my next NP assignment, so I took a short-term and travel assignment. So in this role, I'm an RN with NP knowledge. You're bedside nurse. I'm bedside nurse in the ER. All right. I got this NP knowledge in my head. I don't tell anyone that I'm an NP or anything like that. I'm just, I'm a nurse, just like everybody else. Okay. All right. So you're a bedside nurse. This patient comes in. Just tell us, like, what's the information you got initially, maybe from EMS or your initial assessment findings before you had the diagnosis? What initially do you know? How's the patient presenting? So what I was told was, oh, Alice, you're going to be getting, I think it was like an 80-year-old male that come in for a change of LOC was found down. It's kind of very basic. I don't know. In the ER, sometimes your reports are very bare bones. You don't get off. Yeah. You don't get one this, sentence. <laughs> one sentence or anything like that. And so they're like, they mentioned something about, oh, and his, his pressure was low. They gave him a liter of fluid. And they made it seem very nonchalant, you know, found down, change in LOC. So, but he's not on any oxygen or anything. Like, I guess. You know, they're just giving them some, gave them a liter of fluids to kind of bring the blood pressure up. But that's all I know. Full code. That's it. Okay. That's it. And so the right. patient comes in 
and it's like early morning. And then I go in and as soon as I lay eyes on that patient, I'm looking at the EMT like, are you crazy? This, this is a very sick patient. I like <laughs> right away. I'm like, coach stroke, coach stroke, get the team here. So what was it about the patient's presentation that triggered that for you? Oh my. Like, what were they doing or not doing that you're like, okay, no, this needs to be Quick. Yes. Let's, let's, make this, let's make this fast, guys. Right, right. So I'll say this. I think, and not just nurses, ENTs, anyone in the healthcare profession, we have, I get it, we see a lot of sick things, but we can never get jaded or like just be so nonchalant about stuff. This elderly man came in. He was looking really pale. He was parsley breathing. And I could see a little spit flying out of his mouth. His eyes were closed. And I looked at him and his arms kind of looked, I mean, it's a little bit early, but I'm like, is that the cerebrate? Like in, immediately oh in my, my head, I'm goodness. like unresponsive. And I see his, it's like almost a, when he's breathing, like you can hear like a little, a sound. And I'm like, he's full code. Like what else is going on? He's like, oh, he has hypertension and BPH, but he was so nonchalant. I said, oh no. And then I said, I yelled at the church. I said, call a coach stroke. We need to go to CT right away. And they, their eyes like lit up like, what do you mean? What do you mean? What did we miss? You missed the boat. That's what you missed. <laughs> I mean, person was getting ready for church, alert oriented, very well dressed. And then all of a sudden you're changing LSE. Brother, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Right. That quick switch. A liter and of so- fluids is not going to fix this, right? No, no nor has it. No. He's still unresponsive. I yes. wanted just to interject and say, this is why nursing intuition and like judgment is so important because I imagine his vital signs were not bad yet. No. Or maybe they had fixed the blood pressure. So it's not like you're saying I have concerns because of these numbers I see on the monitor or because of these lab result findings or you had nothing except for your intuition and the patient's presentation. And so I just want to empower nurses to know if you see a patient, you don't like how they're breathing, you're concerned about whether or not responding, feel empowered to speak up and say something. You don't have to wait until the vital signs get bad. So yes. Okay. Continue. Great yeah. story. So yeah. what were your initial, I mean, obviously you called a code stroke, but what were your other like differential diagnoses that you were kind of thinking through as you're getting him unsettled and on the monitor and packed up for CAT scan? Well, my biggest thing was airway. I was bi- mostly concerned with airway because again, even when the patient came in, he was very well dressed, very well manicured and you know, again, they said, oh, he was alert oriented. He was getting ready for church. So for someone to have that change of a condition and I saw that breathing and it was irregular and I saw the spit and I'm like, okay, blood pressure is dropping. There's something that's going on. And something that I earned early on is that, and it's, this isn't always easy to pick up, but whenever there's hypoxemia, blood pressure drops because there's vasodilatation in the blood vessel. So I knew, I'm like, mm-hmm, not on my watch. That's, like I knew that there was something going on and mm-hmm. in the state that he was in, I did not believe he was going to be able to maintain his airway for much longer. Okay, He was compensating, but baby, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to stay for very long. And I suspected that something's going on in the brain for this change to happen. So I was like, okay, airway, and we got to go to head CT, see what's going on in the head that may have and likely caused this to happen. So did you guys intubate then CT or CT then intubate? No. So with coach strokes, there is an urgency to get to the CT scanner right away. I believe it's less than 10 minutes. We want we want from door to CT. Let's get a picture of that head CT. So literally the patient comes in on the gurney like the guys are so nonchalant. And I'm looking, I'm like, coach Joe, we got to go. And literally, and he had some little rinky dinky line, like a 24 in a ah, little, right? And so I'm like, that's not going to last. So I stuffed my pockets with IV start stuff. We grabbed the monitor. We had a little stroke tackle box, like with ACLS drugs in there. I grabbed that. 
I grab a, another liter of fluids just in case. And then we just, we go. That's the first thing we do. Like, I think we maybe, but during all that transition, it was enough for us to get a set of vitals. And I think the blood pressure was like, the stock was like 94, but he was like tacking away at like 102 or something like that. So that's all I, I saw. And like, literally as we're getting the t- things together, I do a neuro assessment. I yell out to the ER doctor. I'm like, Mm-mm, these pupils are dilated. We got to go. They're like, go. And then like, we're literally like rushing to the CT scanner mm-hmm. and um, I'm continuing to assess. Like the whole time I'm watching his breathing. I like, the whole time I'm watching, I'm watching that monitor. I look, I'm picking up pieces of information. And in my head, I'm thinking like, what could this be? What's going on? Mm-hmm. We get to the CT scanner. Once we get him on the CT scanner mm-hmm. and they're getting their equipment up. I threw in an 18 and a 20 that fast. And thank God I got those IVs in there because as soon as he went in the scanner, we looked completely obvious. Head bleed all the way. Even a blind person could have seen that there was the head bleed. Sorry, I'm I'm being exaggerate. Exaggerating to, yeah, yeah. to tell you like how obvious anyone, like a six-year-old could have said like, what's that? Like what's literally, that yeah. what's that yeah. spot? So for those that don't know, what does it look like on the head CT whenever there's a bleed in the brain? So you saw this like white area, like you're going to look for quality on both sides. Like, okay, mm-hmm. I should see it. Like if the ventricles in the brain, like I see this, I see this. So the shape, everything looks normal. Then you get to a part where it's like, oh, there's a large white blob on the right side. That ventricle mm-hmm. doesn't look like the other side. It looks like it's squished in. And that midline is shifted. Like, so you literally could see the, the mass effect, the midline shift, everything. Mm-hmm. And while we were in there, I immediately pick up the phone and call the ER. I said, he has a massive head bleed. Get the ventilator together. Do you want to do an angiogram of the head while we're here? And fortunately, I had those other IVs because I would have never been able to push contrast through a 24 in the hand. Right. No. Right. We do DT angiogram because we really need to assess the abnormalities of the vessels and that bleed because this was not a comprehensive stroke center. And so I knew we were going to need to send this patient out and this is what they were going to ask for. So to prevent doing a head CT, going back and then having to come back and do a CT angiogram, I'm like, you want to do this now? Like we're here, time is, literally time is tissue and this bleed it was no bueno. And I knew that we did not have the luxury of time. So I was advocating on the patient's behalf. And even the guys in the, who were doing the CT, they're like, why did they bring them here? Because usually when they're suspected stroke, we like to take people to stroke centers. But if someone doesn't have those classic stroke symptoms, they don't know. They just bring them to the closest hospital. Yeah. So I believe it's 85% of strokes are ischemic. So mm-hmm. EMTs are very used to seeing ischemic stroke symptoms, you know, the yep. FAST, facial drooping, arm weakness, speech slur. Yeah. But what about whenever it's not responsive? There's a gazillion things that can cause unresponsiveness, but I'm glad you were clued into what was happening with them. Clearly it was a neuro injury that was causing that. All right. So you finish your CT, both the contrast and non-contrast CT, okay. book it back to the ER, and then you guys set up to intubate. Yes. So how did you guys know that you had to intubate? Because his stats weren't bad yet. How were you like, okay, we had to intubate prophylactically for this guy? Absolutely. So the patient had a change in level of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. So you always want to be on high alert for people who have a change in LSE because can they protect their airway? Do they have a gag reflex? Like, And if there's been some type of neurological change, we know that the respiratory centers in the brain, like how long is that going to last? Is it going to affect it? 
And because of that massive hand bleed that was already like pushing the shifting, yeah, shifting and all those type of things, it's like, oh no, this person, it's just a matter of time as to what, if not corrected soon enough, is going to stop breathing. So it felt when on our way back to the unit, listen, Archie was there, the ventilator was there, like everybody was in play in motion. And everything that comes along with intubating a patient was theirs. Like all the other things, like whenever I intubate someone, we're thinking like, okay, well, I'm going to need a Foley. I'm going to need an OG tube. I'm going to need, you know, probably a rectal probe for the, for the temperatures. Like all of these things we were anticipating. They even had a bear hugger there just in case he was hypothermic, which he was. Because when you have brain injuries like that, it helps, you can't have difficulty controlling your temperature. So that being very attentive to your assessment and, also mentioning that pupils were dilated and sluggish. Late signs, late signs that there's yeah. things going on in the brain. But that's why it's so, so important when you do your physical assessments to not cheat. Mm-hmm. Do not cheat those vital signs or respirations. Do not cheat your neuroassessments. Mm-hmm. Please do not. Those are so important, especially the pupils. Yeah. Because it tells you so much about what's happening inside the patient. Exactly. And then when you have a conscious person, you know, neuroassessments are a little bit easier because you're talking to them. They're going to do movements and stuff like that. But in the unconscious person, literally your pupil assessments is all you have, non-invasively. That's all that you really have because the person's not responsive. They can't please your hands or do all these maneuvers because they're unconscious. They're not able to interact with you. So can we pause for a minute and talk about some of the differences in, say, the assessment findings for someone who has an ischemic stroke versus the assessment findings for someone with it? hemorrhagic stroke. You would kind of touch on a little bit with your decerebrate posturing and pupillary changes, but let's back it up and kind of like talk about that more comprehensively, let's say, the different presentations. Okay. And I also preface this because I want people to feel comfortable. I'm not a neurologist. I'm not necessarily the neurologist. I don't <laughs> like, know I'm a heart nurse. <laughs> right. I'm a heart nurse, but there are some fundamental things that I do know. So if anyone's listening like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to remember that Listen, you don't necessarily have to know it, but know where to go to look it up. There you go. So I always say that you don't have to know everything, but know where to go to look it up. And so when it comes to ischemic strokes, for the most part, people are awake when they come in. They're talking to us, even if they have some expressive aphasia or something like that. Somebody usually comes with them. They're aware of what happened, the changes are like, but the person for the most part is awake. You can see like some unilateral differences, some weaknesses and things like that, or Maybe in their speech, slurred speech, or you know, when you're having them look at the pictures for the your um, for your stroke assessment, like you have tools and they can usually interact with you, and it's a unilateral difference in assessment. So, in most cases, we're thinking something like ischemic stroke. Now, I've not had again. There's not a hemorrhagic strokes are less common, so I haven't had a whole bunch of them. Although it seems like I had a series of them lately. <laughs> most of these people that I've encountered. Unfortunately, by the time they've gotten to me, I've had already a change in LOC. And I think it's because it can go undetected. A lot of retrospectively talk to them, they're like, you know, he or she was saying she had a headache. Mm-hmm. She's having a headache. She didn't seem the same. And she went to lay down and then she never woke up. Like, that's what I've classically seen. Now, again, I'm, I'm not. I hear that all the time. I'm not the hemorrhagic expert, uh, stroke expert or queen, guys. But in my experience, it's usually someone's had a headache or some dizziness or like their eye was hurting, their head was hurting, and they went to go lay down and brush it off. And they wake up and or two, and then they don't wake up. So those are the cases that I have seen. And we get concerned about that. Like even with aneurysms, when someone say, oh, this is the worst headache of my life. We take that seriously. 
when there's a right when there's a rupture there's blame brain uh, I was trying to say blood and brain at the same time. When there's blood <laughs> that enters into the brain tissue, it's very irritating. It causes inflammation. So that can trigger some of that headache. And so those are the some of the things that I see. But you will not know until you do a CT of the head to clearly identify, is it ischemic or is it hemorrhagic? Yeah. And if it's hemorrhagic, most often the symptoms are more global yeah. versus like a focal deficit, like one side or the other. It's like everything's having problems, you know, like their yes. whole body is not responding to you. They're not waking up at all. It's not just a one sided thing. Yeah. And so, like you said, time is brain. We got to book it to get interventions because the patient, their ICP is climbing very mm-hmm. rapidly. So let's talk a little bit about the Monroe Kelly doctrine and how yeah. that informs so much of how we intervene for these patients. Right. So. It's interesting you say that because we don't necessarily talk that language. We don't say that in a report like, oh, the, you know, so it's <laughs> like something it's something you learned in anatomy and physiology class that you probably you learned it. And then you probably sat it to the side until all of a sudden you're like, oh, shoot, I'm faced with this. So it's a hypothesis. I mean, that some of this is actually factual because in your brain, you have a set amount of three things. Right. I think it's like 80 percent brain tissue, 10 percent cerebrospinal fluid and 10 percent blood. You're Skull is an enclosed hard space. It's not stretching. It's not getting bigger. The theory is if one of those contents increases because of the finite amount of space, something has to decrease. So, and usually if you have increased cerebral spinal fluid or blood, what does that mean? It means that the brain tissue is usually what's going to be sacrificed. And there's only one place for that brain tissue to go. And that's just to herniate I think that's the foramen magnum. The brainstem. Mm-hmm. And it's to herniate and to squeeze out of there. Now, brain tissue, so respons- much responsible for important bodily functions. When that herniates, game over. Game yeah, over. There's no return from that. Mm-mm. I like to explain it to newer nurses because you hear the term like hemorrhagic stroke. Think, oh my gosh, they're hemorrhaging. There's just blood everywhere. There's so much blood. Mm. It's not so much blood. It's a little small amount of blood that's leaking the brain. And that small amount of blood causes a cascade of awfulness. So yes. the blood itself is taking up more real estate inside the skull, which is the brain. And like you said, the blood is irritating to the brain tissue, which causes it to swell, which squishes things even more. Like yeah. it is a cascade of awfulness. And so we have to act quickly or we can do it to make some more space in that skull because it's not going to stretch. We have to make space ourselves. Yeah. So what are some interventions we can do? Not just the ones you can do at a comprehensive stroke center like ventriculostomy. What can you do at a small community hospital without a neurosurgeon? What can we do to decrease ICP while we're waiting for the definitive care of, say, a ventriculostomy or a craniotomy? Right. So that is a great question. So again, with that head bleed, you have the increased cranial pressure, right? So we don't want anything to herniate out out of the skull, right? So some of the things that you can do, you want to manage that. You want to maintain a normal ICP. And I think a normal, correct me if I'm wrong again, a normal ICP is like five to 15. Now, if you don't have a device to measure that, you're like, I'm not supposed to know, right? So this is why your assessment skills are so Mm -hmm. key here, guys. So you need to do that very frequent neuro assessment. And again, on an unconscious person, your pupils, are going to be mm-hmm. like the window to what's going on with this patient. When it comes to decreasing ICP, like things like keeping the head in a neutral position, keeping it midline so things can flow in and out, things that are supposed to flow in and out of the brain can flow properly, mm-hmm. keeping the head at 30 degrees, uh, maintaining a good blood pressure, a, that good mean arterial pressure is going to be important because there's this thing called 
cerebral perfusion pressure. Mm-hmm. Again, if you don't have a device, you can't really measure this, but I'll just say a CPP is usually, I think it's 70 to 100 is the normal value what we aim for. But you don't have a, let's say you're a small center, you don't have the device, you don't know what that is. Well, we know that CPP equals MAP minus ICP. So of any of those things, you don't have anything invasive. You can control a map. You can monitor your map. Mm-hmm. So if you can maintain a good map for your patient, estimating what the ICP is based on your assessment. Like if your pupils are dilated, you see this progression, like they're getting bigger and bigger. They're getting more sluggish. Like that's pretty a sign that ICP is increasing. Or you could look for other changes like posturing. Now, this gentleman that came in already was doing some the cerebrate posturing is very subtle, but when you have a head blue like that, you automatically got to go in neuro mode. And I'll be honest, I don't necessarily know this all the time every day because I don't deal with these patients, but you got to like quick refresh, like, okay, the cerebral posturing, what does that mean? And all of these things. But other things that we can do to decrease the ICP, give mannitol, mm-hmm. powerful diuretic. So that can help decrease ICP. And if we can quickly decrease ICP in those early initial moments, we buy ourselves a couple hours. So those are some of the things that, you know, small community hospitals, and this particular sign was a small community hospital. So they weren't even a primary stroke center, right? So like this was a very small community hospital and we had to move very quickly. So we did all of those things like intubated. Oh, and also the ventilation and your gas exchanges can also influence ICP. So really making sure that you're, you know, checking your ABGs of the oxygenation as well. Yep, that's CO2 and things like that. So there's a a couple of things you can do, but without having the neurosurgeon on deck ready to take the person to OR, without having any invasive devices to manage ICP or to help them decrease ICP, those were the things that I could manage, right? Blood pressure, I could give medications, positioning, temperature control, oxygen control. And so we really, and decrease any type of shivering or, pain, like that shivering, especially in brain injuries like that, they have difficulty controlling their temperature, which is why like the bear hugger was there. Like there were so many little things and someone might say, oh, that doesn't really matter. But collectively, all these little things together can make a big difference and bias a couple hours to get the person to the comprehensive stroke center that can really perform the intervention they need. Absolutely. So I think the big takeaway here is don't feel like, oh, I don't work at a comprehensive stroke center. I work at a smaller hospital. I, yeah. I can't even help these patients. Oh, no, you can't. In fact, you are the most, it's almost like, oh, CPR, that's the easiest job. And I go, no, CPR, even though it's very easy to do, quote unquote, it's the most important. It's basic, right? right? So these basic interventions to decrease ICP are what's going to buy this patient time until they can get that definitive intervention. So it seems yes. simple, but like, no, I'm going to get their pain under control. Do I know if they're hurting? No, they're not talking to me. I'm going to get them pain medicine. I'm oh, going to no. make sure that they are calm. I'm going to speak quietly in the room. I'm going to dim the lights. Whatever I can do to decrease ICP, put the head of the bed 30 degrees and then head the head itself midline, uh-huh. giving the mannitol, giving whatever we can to decrease ICP. Right. And blood pressure control is so important. It is. Typically, the body will start to become hypertensive to compensate. And so we don't want the blood pressure too low. So they're not a pressure to get the blood up and around the circle of Willis. But if it's too high, well, we're just potentiating that bleed to keep pouring out of the brain. And so usually we shoot for a systolic around like 140. So not, not low, 
but definitely not high. There's a sweet spot there. So just mm-hmm. making sure that you're hanging some sort of drip, either to raise the blood pressure or lower it to get it in that particular spot that's best for ICP. But yeah, these patients are very difficult to manage. Very difficult. Yes, because you're doing this dance. Like you said, like blood pressure management. Like there's so many different things and they're so, literally they're fragile, guys, because we can't see what's going on in the brain. So fragile. And I also think that when we're looking at those vital signs, there's something called Cushing's triad. So like you were talking about that. Oh, I'm so glad you brought Cushing's yes. triad up. <laughs> These are the things that you learned in nursing school, but you're like, I'm never going to use that. But that, yes, you are. You're like that was on my NCLEX at some point. Yes. But yes. So looking for those changes, like so, like, so like you said, very early on, when patients present, it's very important to know what their baseline is and then to watch for trends. I tell people all the time, They'll tell me like, oh, the blood pressure, the heart rate is I'm like, okay, well, where was it when they came in? Because I need to know, are we going in the right direction or the wrong direction? So when you, by the time you get to Cushing's triad, and unfortunately, I've seen Cushing's triad. I saw it in this patient, but actually the first time I saw it was in my friend's grandmother. When we went, I went to go see her in the emergency room. Like, she's like, can you come with me? I think something's going on with my mom or my grandma. And, you know, it just didn't seem right. But it was bradycardia. She was like in the low 50s. She had widening pulse pressure. So that systolic was high, that diastolic was really low. So there was a wide pulse pressure. And then her breathing was irregular. Like the patient that you had too. Yeah, like the patient I had. And so it would take a trained eye. I remember, and this was not the patient that I was taking care of, but my friend's grandma's patient. She had an ischemic stroke, which then you're like, oh, it's ischemic. We got to keep the blood pressure up. But then it went too high. It was uncontrolled. And she converted to a hemorrhagic stroke. <sighs> and when I came into and saw her mom, I'm like, immediately, like the doctor's around. I'm like, why is she in Cushing's triad? But long story short, Cushing's triad. So Cushing's triad, that's something that's important to know. Yeah. That's classic for, um, you know, head injuries and increased ICP. Yeah. I mean, we are the eyes and ears for the whole interdisciplinary mm-hmm. team. Like that is our job. Yeah. And so paying attention to those little changes and trends, like you said, in the patient, maybe they came in with a heart rate of 60 and now it's 50. Okay, big deal. 50, you see it all the time, but like, but that's a trend though. That's a change. Now the blood pressure yeah. was 130 systolic and now it's 180 systolic. That's what. No big deal, but that's a change, right? So that's like putting all those assessment findings coming together is like, oh, those three things, that together is Cushing Triad. And now yeah. I'm very concerned because the three of them together is big warning signs for increased ICP. Very good. Exactly. So Alice, when thinking about caring for patients with brain bleeds, are there any for you big educational like nuggets or takeaways or wisdom or pitfalls that you want to warn nurses against? Because it is scary when your patient's crashing. Right. So one of the things I always encourage nurses, because I'm going to refer, oh, patients with head bleed. Well, what kind? Because there's different kinds and we treat them differently. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of cliche to say, oh, they're a brain, the head bleed. Okay, look, what kind of head bleed? Like, is it epidural, subdural, subarachnoid, intraventricular? Is there a midline shift? Is there a mass effect? Like, did you read the CT results? Like, I need to know because I want to know what I'm walking into. And yeah. so I also really encourage nurses to actually read the reports. Sometimes you get in a report, you think like, okay, that's it. But then you really need to read the report because there have been so many times where I have saw some, you know, gained information from a, a radiology or diagnostic test, something like something I've looked at, and then it helps guide my assessments. I use that bit of information yes. like, you know what, if this is on the MRI, that affects this part of the body. Let me make sure I'm like super hyper vigilant with my assessment here. Like if I know that there's midline shift, mass effect, and like bleeding, like I'm really, and they're unconscious, I'm really tuning into 
the people are exam. And I know you're like, she keeps talking about the people exam. Yes, I am. Because that's <laughs> all you have when the patient is unconscious. Looking at like the size of it, the responsiveness of it, like, and then tracking that trend. Because if you don't do that frequent enough, literally in less than a 30, not even 30 minutes, in like 15 minutes or so, there can be so many changes that happen and you miss your opportunity because you don't have an art, like a hand to squeeze or a leg to lift and say, hold for five seconds. All you have are the eyes. That's all you have because you're not like in a permanent state of CT where you can see active changes. All you got are the pupils and then that mild posturing, posturing which by the way, you know, we don't see it often. You're like, oh, that doesn't look like the textbook, but you really have to be looking for those things. Because just think, what is normal posturing? Like normal posturing. And if you, even if you reposition them into a normal pot in a position, they're going to find themselves back into that posturing. So this patient was very stiff, rigid. The shoulders were, was like internally rotated. The hands were going out. Like the feet were like straight and the toes, like it was, mm. you couldn't bend this man's knee for nothing. Like it was so stiff. So that's not normal. Even in your other patients who have changed in LOC, you can bend them and move them because we clean them and turn them all the time. But this man, when, I mean, he physiologically, it was not happening. So patient comes in, ultramental status. You immediately knew that this is something neuro because it happened so suddenly, right? It wasn't like, yeah. oh, yeah, grandpa's been feeling oh. sick for a couple of days and becomes more lethargic. This is a sudden change. Yep. I mean, I, I'd be ruling out like, did he take something? Like, do we need to get... But if you check the pupils, you'll know, right? (laughs) If you you took a bunch of narcotics, they'd be really tiny. But you pull those pupils, you're like, oh my gosh, they're not responding. That would not be a narcotic overdose. That's going to be something else. I mean, there's so many things that we can look for as nurses to figure out what's going on. So I'm glad you initiated coach stroke, get them to CT. You found that they have increased ICP because of the bleed. So you're doing intervention to get the ICP down. And then did the patient ultimately go to a comprehensive stroke center from you? Yes, absolutely. I get on right away on the phone to give report to the comprehensive stroke center. And they're like, okay, we have someone be around. They'll be there and, you know, within the hour. These are very involved patients and things can change at the last minute. Something I also wanted to mention is with this patient, when he was found out, like, usually if someone falls and hits their head, you see like a bruise, a bump or something. Uh, we yeah. see, there, so there was none of that. And I'm like, I'm feeling his head. I'm looking like, I see no sign. All right, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> you have to be, but you should, because, but I'll say this, just because you don't see that a bruise or a continue, you know, a bump or something on someone's head doesn't mean that they don't have a head bleed if they're found down. So as we're do, working up like differential diagnosis, like what could this be? Drugs, they fall and hit their head, is it a bleed? Is it a stroke? Is it thing? Just be mindful that people don't always get sick by the textbook. Like we've been talking about some things, classic findings. But just be open, just be open to the fact that something else could happen because, and again, I had this patient for such a short time. I don't really know what the full story is. I didn't get it because he went somewhere else, but right. he was very, very independent, bound down, no bruising or bumps to his head. He had a history of hypertension and he had BPH. And so, and then I asked, I was like, did he take any Motrin? Like, has he taken anything? And sometimes, like I say that to say, even though I study and, you know, we study as nurses, the the textbooks, the symptoms and the classic symptoms, sometimes healthcare is still such a mystery. We don't really get to figure everything out, but which is why it's good, like your show, Sarah, to talk about stuff like this. So it gets, keeps people's minds open and a high alert of, okay, looks like this, but it also might be this over here. We don't know. 
Like there's so many things you got to, when you're looking at labs, God, you got, you really got to look at a bigger picture and see how different elements of things impact the the bigger story. But yeah, absolutely. So as we're closing, (laughs) what would you say is the best advice anyone's ever given you with regards to nursing? It's like stuck with you forever that you would like to give to all of my listeners. (laughs) Oh, well, you know, when someone says, oh, they were like that. I don't know. Have you ever heard that? Like when you're getting a report. I hear it all the time. <laughs> I never take that for an answer. When someone says, oh, they're just like, oh, that. they were like that. When, they were like that. Yeah. When I got this them. is their baseline. I'm like, wait, their baseline is bigger than no. 40 times a minute. That's a no. Exactly. But the baseline is a heart rate of 130. That doesn't seem like a it baseline. That make sense. <laughs> so the best piece of advice that someone says, so when someone gives you information like that, obviously there there has to be a reason why the person's like that. So don't give up and stop like exploring as to why that is or assume that that's normal, it's baseline, no sense of urgency, absolutely not. If they're sick enough to be in the hospital, there's something going on that you need to be on high alert and up to hurry and looking for those subtle signs and changes because, and it also touches a soft place in my heart because again, my dad died in the emergency room from inattentive staff, right? So retrospectively speaking, and again, I was not necessarily a nurse when this happened, but from what we gather, he had a heart attack, heart was very weak, he already had like this history, but then went into sudden cardiac arrest. He wasn't on the monitor right away. So like third, you have missed opportunities. If you don't do an assessment, you can't act. You can't act on what you don't know. So when someone right. says, oh, I got him like that, or that's their baseline, like, no, it's not good enough. This is not good enough. And someone could potentially die if you are just like so nonchalant like that. So don't be that nurse. Please don't be that nurse. You wouldn't want that nurse taking care of you or your family. So don't be that nurse to someone else. Amen, Alice. Amen. All right. This has been such a good discussion. I'm so excited to edit this episode, actually. But if people wanted to find you or hear more from you, how would they go about it? What's the best place to get to find you? Sure. I'm on all things social at Ask Nurse Alice, although I don't take and talk very much. I'm more on Instagram and Facebook type of things. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn as well, but everything is Ask Nurse Alice. And then my website is AskNurseAlice.com. And I also, too, do a podcast called the Ask Nurse Alice podcast with nurse.org. And that's on all podcast platforms you can listen to it it's really fun we talk about professional issues practice issues policy issues things that are impacting the nursing community and things that are happening in the community that we should know as nurses so it's kind of a potpourri of a lot of things that kind of like your news for nurses that keeps you in the know of a lot of different things i love it i love it well alice it's been such a pleasure having you thank you so much for your time today have a great rest of your day thanks for having me before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. 
Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.